As a child, I assumed Jesus spoke Elizabethan English. I thought Jesus used these and thous in his public life and work because every time the scriptures were read in church, Jesus sounded more like a refined Brit than an uneducated Palestinian Jew living in an obscure corner of the Roman Empire. Throughout my formative years, the rhythms of the authorized version, better known as the King James Version, became increasingly familiar to me, even second nature. Embossed forever on my memory is the blessing my childhood pastor said every Sunday in King James English from the end of the letter of Jude. The ways the deacons in our church addressed God with such reverence and propriety and with an unparalleled mastery not only of our English dialect, but of an English that predated them by centuries. And how my grandmother seamlessly weaved this linguistic universe into hymns, prayers, and conversations alike which is exactly why when I was preparing for this homily, I couldn't help but open a copy of the King James Bible to hear anew its rendering of this portion from the letter to the Hebrews. While the New Revised Standard Version that we use in church every week interprets the line as do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing that some have entertained angels without knowing it, The King James Bible renders it as follows. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Some have entertained angels unawares. Poetic, colorful. Some have entertained angels unawares. In continuity with preceding sections, the author of Hebrews is crafting what she calls, just a few weeks ago, a great cloud of witnesses. That unseen but very present crowd of faithful ancestors who wrap us in their prayers and love. It is these ancestors, these saints, to whom we are joined in Jesus, the author and finisher of faithfulness, the one in whom we find meaning, forgiveness, purpose, and love, who is present just as truly in prisoners as he is in the bread and wine we will soon receive. It is this Jesus who himself was a prisoner who himself was subjected to an impoverished legal system, who never said a mumbling word in the face of profound injustice. It is this Jesus who, with his mother Mary and his adopted father Joseph, ends up as a refugee in Egypt due to political unrest in his homeland. Jesus knows what it's like to be a refugee, a stranger, an alien, an undocumented immigrant, a prisoner, a person easily forgotten in systems meant for the native born, 
the citizen, the politically stable, the neighbor. Hospitality is a central dimension of the baptized life, of the life that participates in the joy of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. A life that grows in its consciousness of the numerous ways in which not only humans, but whole ecosystems are forever connected in a common destiny. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers. For doing that, some have entertained angels unawares. The author of Hebrews could very well be referring to a number of familiar stories throughout the Bible. The most well-known being that of Sarah and Abraham's hospitality to what we call the three visitors near the Oaks of Mamre in the book of Genesis. One day, Abraham, seated at the entrance of his tent, as wealthy men of his era did, because I guess they had nothing better to do, and that'll make more sense in just a moment, he looks up and he sees three men standing near him. Let a little water be brought. Wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Let me also bring you a little bread, he says to these visitors, to these men. The men consent to Abraham's offer and he quickly instructs Sarah, and that would not go over well today, to use choice flour, to knead it, and make cakes. Abraham then runs to his herd, chooses a calf, and one of his servants, you get the drift, prepares the calf for dinner. Wealthy men, it seems, have always ordered their staffs around. And then the story takes a turn. The three men ask where Sarah is. Where is Sarah thy wife? There in the tent, Abraham says. You and your wife will have a son, says one of the men. And Sarah laughs. She is standing in the tent overhearing the conversation, and I don't know what the Hebrew word for eavesdropping is, but she's standing in the tent listening to the conversation and she laughs because she and Abraham are very old. They are beyond childbearing age. The strangers then ask Abraham why Sarah laughs, and Sarah denies laughing. The strangers then ask this. Is anything too wonderful for the eternal one? At the set time, I will return to you in due season and Sarah shall have a son. As we close, it is worth noting that those same visitors expressed to Abraham curiosity about two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And in their curiosity, the strangers enter into a sort of bidding war with Abraham over the cities. If we find 50 righteous people in the city, we won't destroy it, they say. Abraham says, bring your bid down just a bit. And he lowers the bid to 10. So the strangers move on from Abraham and Sarah in Mamre and visit Sodom and Gomorrah. Whereas the strangers were treated well and were greeted with water and bread and cake by Abraham's staff, they were treated inhospitably by the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, prompting divine destruction on their cities. And this episode of Sodom and Gomorrah is what in the book of the prophet Ezekiel is referred to as follows. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the impoverished and the needy. Credible, and I use that word intentionally, credible biblical scholars have long asserted that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was not homosexuality for that construct did not even exist then. It's like thinking of computers in the Bible. And they assert, and rightfully so, that homosexuality is not a sin. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is inhospitality. And maybe there's a lot of confusion about that because the words sound so similar. Both Sarah and Abraham and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah entertain angels unawares. But only one of them, only one of them treats the angels or the visitors or the strangers well. These stories, as all biblical stories, are an occasion for prayer, for reflection, an occasion for us to, to suppress the impulse to write off those we do not know, to write off those who seem strange to us, to write off those who look different from us, who may pray in ways unfamiliar to us. This reminds me of something I read a little bit earlier this year by a deeply skilled and artful Zimbabwean writer named Panache Chigumatsi. And I highly recommend her book, These Bones Will Rise Again. And she says this in her book, quote, when a person asks the question, Munhu Here, is this a human being? It's a question in keeping with what my people know as Hunhu a philosophy of Bantu language speakers across Southern Africa, best understood by the aphorism, a person is a person through others. A person is a person 
through others, an ethical personhood that leads many of our parents to reprimand us for bad behavior, especially in the company of others, by demanding to know, is this how human beings behave, end quote? If our humanity our capacity, our bandwidth to be human is defined by our treatment of strangers, by the risk of entertaining angels unawares, then may our answer be a full-throated yes. Yes, this is how human beings behave. We quickly gather water and cakes and bread and wine and put them out because people are never, ever who they appear to be. Amen.